Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is John Allen Paulos, a mathematics professor and best-selling author who is probably known to many of you for his books Enumeracy and A Mathematician Reads the Newspaper. John's latest endeavor is Enumerate Life, a fascinating venture intriguingly described by the book's subtitle, A Mathematician Explores the Vagaries of Life, His Own and Probably Yours. John, welcome to the show. Jim, it's a pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, John. John, what gave you the idea for writing this book? Well, uh, many of my books uh, combine uh, disparate uh, disciplines. Uh, mathematics, one of them always, but something else. Uh, and sometimes it seems weird. I mean, people say math and uh, biography in this particular case, but I've written about math and humor, math and journalism math in the stock market, but uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, as has often been said, uh, fish don't need bicycles and flashlights don't use solar power and biographies don't seem to need or use mathematics. So it's uh, my burden in this book to show how mathematical notions can illuminate uh, certain aspects of our life stories. Yeah, that's what really surprised me when I read in the introductions that one of your reasons for writing the book was to focus the mathematical lens on the topic of biography, because I sure hadn't seen that. Um, I enjoyed your anecdote about numerical estimation and how it affected your belief in Santa Claus. I think our audience would enjoy it as well. (laughs) Okay. Uh, No, early on, I was uh, a skeptic, and uh, it seems like uh, too bad a memory for an author of a book like Enormity to have, but I do very distinctly remember uh, at a very young age, a toddler, uh, not believing in Santa Claus, and uh, and the reason was kind of quantitative in a, in a very loose sense uh, reasoning. I mean, how can he go down all those chimneys, stop and have a hot chocolate, all of them, and so on. And so concluded, no, that's that's impossible. But uh, I oddly was uh, very concerned about my my parents, who seemed to kind of get off on my uh, on Santa Claus and Christmas. So I, I kept my uh, my skepticism from them, even though I was three or four years old. So as not to um, disappoint them. Yeah, you sure don't want to disillusion your parents. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, I mean, but that sort of thing, I, I did a lot. I mean, I remember in elementary school, we'd be talking about World War II, and I remember this this girl, I remember her name, but I, I won't mention it now, not that uh, she's public or anything, but um, she said, uh, does, do, does, do all the uh, citizens of a foreign country on the losing side of a war, are they all killed and all the soldiers killed? And I, and I thought to myself, no, you don't go to these uh, Saturday matinee B movies about World War II, do you? I mean, that that just seemed also absurdly enumerate, although, of course, I didn't know the word then. So uh, 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 a tendency to just count things I had from very early on, including counting my uh, father's uh, packs of uh, cigarettes in a pack of cigarettes with my grubby toddler hands full of peanut butter and uh, I was amused to, to note that every pack contained 20 cigarettes. Uh, he was probably less amused to uh, find uh, peanut butter on his cigarettes. Yeah, well, just so long as you weren't lighting them. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, no. <laughs> the pleasures and obsessions of counting permeate your book. Many mathematicians I have met take pleasure in counting. I actually have found that many children love to count, but somehow that pleasure erodes as they grow older. Here's a really big question. Your book in numeracy put a word into the English language that perfectly described a phenomenon of which many math teachers were aware. How does the state of enumeracy now compare with when you wrote the book, and what suggestions would you make to alleviate it? I I think it's very difficult to make such generalizations. Certainly, there are pockets of excellence in schools uh, throughout the, the country. 
and also maybe larger pockets of, uh, of not such excellent uh, instruction. Uh, people always ask about pedagogy and uh, the ideal pedagogy and Common Core. In general, I'm in favor of, uh, of the Common Core, but it it, uh, it didn't be all that common. I mean, uh, people uh, learn in different ways. I mean, uh, one of the most influential teachers I had um, uh, certainly didn't subscribe to any advanced notion of pedagogy. In fact, he was kind of a martinet, kind of a bully. Uh, I tell a story in a numeracy and uh, repeat it here, but um, he was, uh, we were talking about sports. I think I was 10 or 11 years old, about fourth grade, fifth grade. And uh, we each had to say something that interested us about sports. And I said that there was a pitcher for the Milwaukee Braves who got only one man out and, um, and uh, allowed five unearned runs. So I said his earned run average was 135. And because uh, five divided by 127th of a game is 135. And he started blustering and, uh, and my voice was quavering. My hands were shaking. My face got red. And he said, you can't have an earned run average more than 27. Sit down, John, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, it stung me, and later in the season, this pitcher never uh, pitched again. And Milwaukee, <laughs> the, the Milwaukee Journal <laughs> published the final statistics for anybody who played for the Braves that year, and it said, sure enough, he had an earned run average of 135. So I brought it up to him and showed him, and uh, and he said, oh, sit down, sit down. You don't know what you're no, he didn't say none of what you're talking about. Sit down, sit down. But anyway, it was clear to me that I was right. And what was even more clear to me was that he knew I was right. So, I mean, I had to, I realized at that time there's a kind of uh, power that mathematics confers on people or can confer on people. That, And even though I was small and, and uh, slight in a way and he was big and had a bulbous red nose, I was right. He was wrong and he knew it. So um, that uh, kind of contributed to um, my fascination with mathematics. And it's not, it's, it's clear, it's not a, a great pedagogical practice, but uh, somehow uh, showing how mathematics and a bit of logic and some facts can actually uh, vanquish uh, bullies and bullhards, I, I think it sometimes uh, work. It's a, it can be more effective than figuring out the, the height of a flagpole across the river. So, um, you know, I hesitate to say one or the other or the other or the other uh, curriculum or pedagogy is ideal. People learn in different ways. But in general, I think I can say that um, an emphasis on on understanding, on, on cognition, on a qualitative, qualitative appreciation of ideas is more conducive to um, uh, mathematics, uh, the people going on in mathematics, then is a uh, focus on on rote procedures. Uh, you know, 100 uh, long division problems in elementary school, 100 polynomials to factor in middle school, 100 functions to differentiate in uh, high school or college. That can be stultifying, mind-numbing. And uh, and happily with the technology and various apps and software, that that can be minimized. I mean, you still should have some of it so you know what the software is doing, but the emphasis can be placed on, on understanding, on games, on graphs, on, uh, on, on serious mathematical notions and mathematical thinking, model making, and so on. So, um, and I think that that is more the case now than it was 25 years ago, but... Um, I certainly um, think you're right. I certainly think you're right. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is the way that advanced topics from mathematics are interspersed through the narrative in such a way that I think the reader gets an appreciation of uh, these topics as well. For instance, you had an explanation of why we're all strange given in terms of the fraction of a geometrical object in which the normal people reside. It's an intriguing way to illustrate not only that we're all strange, I certainly am, but we're all able to appreciate the n-dimensional geometry without being able to visualize it. Uh, yeah, what I try to do is kind of go back and forth in the book. I mean, looking at certain uh, vignettes, uh, incidents in my life, uh, my life, and using them as jumping-off points to discuss the mathematics that uh, 
uh, sheds light on on all lives. So it's kind of this uh, uh, back and forth between the personal and the abstract. And as, as far as uh, the uh, topic you just mentioned, uh, I was struck by a saying that my father always would, would make, and he said that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are very strange and those whom we don't know very well. So, uh, <laughs> so I mean, basically the idea is the following. Imagine you have uh, a straight line that's 10 inches long. If you cut out the um, half an inch on either end, uh, you, what's left is nine inches. So there's about an inch close to the uh, 10% close to the edge. But now if you make it a square that's 10 inches long and subtract a half an inch from each of the sides, um, that's 80 at 0.9 times 0.9 or 9 times 9, 81 square inches, let's say it's 10 inches over 100 square inches. Uh, the edge now constitutes 19% of the uh, of the the area. You go up a dimension, you have a, a cube that's 10 inches on a side, just take off the edges that are with, uh, within a half an inch of the surface, and you have 9 times 9 times 9, 729 over 1,000. So it's only 73% is in, in the interior, and 27% um, is in, along the edge, close to the edge. And you can look at higher dimensions. I mean, every, every everybody can be measured along countless dimensions. And... Um, and when you get to an n-dimensional um, hypercube or hypersphere, if you want to do with spheres, the percentage of the, the hypervolume that's in the edge is essentially all of it. And uh, the part of it that's in the interior is essentially none of it. So um, uh, by within the edge, I mean uh, within the, the edge is within one half uh, inch of the uh, of the border, and you can even reduce that to a tenth of an inch or a hundredth of an inch or whatever, because there are so many dimensions. Uh, and we can conclude, this is uh, kind of hard to see without a, a little diagram, but we can conclude that virtually everybody is is in the in the uh, edge of uh, uh, n-dimensional uh, hypercube for very high n. So at least along some dimensions. We're all very strange, and uh, that's not that's consistent with this kind of metaphor for strangeness. Here. And you can do the same thing with probability instead of with elementary geometry. But again, the thing that uh, motivated this is I, I remember I met this. Uh, I knew this very peripherally. Knew this guy in graduate school, and he was very conservative, always dressed in a sport coat and tie, and very seemed quite boring, unimaginative, conservative, and that's all. I, all I knew about him. And one day, downtown Madison, I see him hiding behind a, a building. And and then I notice people bending down to try to pick something up and uh, failing, and he would giggle behind the building. And I walked by, and I saw there was a, a $10 bill on the sidewalk but it was heavily shellac, so you couldn't pick it up. So he somehow got a kick out of people trying to pick up this $10 bill, uh, which he had shellac to the sidewalk or somehow fastened to the sidewalk. And uh, he was always giggling at everybody's attempt. So, uh, again, uh, here's somebody who's the most banal of people, at least on the surface, and it was very, very strange. And in my experience, uh, the, the, the little uh, quip that, that I mentioned, uh, everybody, uh, two kinds of people in the world are very strange and the ones you don't know very well, is, is more or less true. Like it, when, when I find more, find out more about a person, they're, they're generally, you know, along most dimensions, I'm, I'm sure within a normal range, but uh, so many dimensions, everyone's really weird along some of them. You have some absolutely wonderful quotes throughout the book. Um, I, I just love good quotes, and one of this, I uh, one of this really appealed to me. Statisticians, like artists, have the bad habit of falling in love with their models. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, George Box, the statistician, writes it, but uh, or, uh, it's his his, uh, his quote. But yeah, no, uh, people. Um, they use models in uh, outside their their range of application, and uh, in simple cases, it's clear that uh, it doesn't work. I mean, uh, 
uh, even two and two equals four. If, uh, you can misapply that and use it as an inappropriate model. If you take two cups of water and add it to two cups of popcorn, you get three cups of soggy water, not four. So in that sense, two and two is three. It's the inappropriate uh, model. Or uh, is the tribe that used to go bear hunting and became extinct uh, shortly after mastering uh, vector analysis. And the reason is before vector analysis, if they saw a bear to the northwest, they'd shoot it with their arrow and they'd, they'd have a feast. But after mastering vector analysis, if they, uh, they would shoot one arrow to the north and one arrow to the west, and, <laughs> and the bear would get away. So, uh, again, it's an inappropriate model, and in, in these cases, it's, it's quite clear what's wrong. But if you're using some kind of esoteric mathematics, uh, some kind of dynamics, or some kind of uh, complicated regressions and statistics, it's not so clear when the, the model that's being used is inappropriate and, and you know, that doesn't work. Well, one of the comparisons that you made in the book, which really intrigued me, involves some very deep mathematics between Gerdell's incompleteness theorem and self-references that appears in autobiography. Right. It's, uh, I mean, when you're talking about uh, incompleteness theorem, I mean, it's hard to be too uh, concise about it. But basically, you're, you're assigning a code to uh, as statements in arithmetic. And uh, and the statements are about numbers, but if you interpret them via this code, you can code for something follows from something else. Something is uh, uh, is a conjunction. Something is whatever. So you can talk meta math. The, the, the statements that are about numbers can be interpreted at a meta level as being about the system itself. If you are artfully uh, supply the code and make sure everything is, is recursive and so on. And in, in a way, that's what we do. Uh, I mean, you can think of cognition that way. The, the analog of uh, talk about numbers, the lower level kind of machine language is neurons talking to each other. And uh, that that's fine, but at a higher level, the, the neurons are are also referring to themselves, referring to the system, the brain of which they're a part, the, the person, the eye of which they're a part. So you've got this bifocal uh, uh, view of things and, and numbers versus uh, metamathematical comments about the system in which numbers exist. And here you have neuronal uh, commotion of neurons on the lower level, and yet uh, at a higher level, uh, they're, they're saying something. They're forming uh, concepts which relate to things in the outside world and self-referential comments, the, the I, in the same way that the Gödel's theorem depends on self-referential comments and says, in a sense, the, this, uh, this statement is not provable. Yeah, you know, one of the things about your book is that you emphasize that mathematical concepts arise from visceral experiences, and that's what I always try to uh, emphasize in my courses. And you progress from there to the notion that constructing an autobiography is similar to curve fitting. And I found that intriguing, and maybe you could discuss that a little. Well, I mean, one kind of common activity in, um, in statistics is creating the, the line or the curve of best fit given a, a bunch of points in a plane or a, or a three-dimensional region or a higher-dimensional region, you, you want to find the curve or surface of best fit. You don't want too many too far away from, from the curve or surface, and uh, you want to minimize those deviations and so on. And in a sense, uh, without, uh, you know, kind of uh, diminishing the complexity of people's lives, that's what you do when you... Uh, to some extent, uh, the, when you tell a, a person's life story, when you construct a biography, there's a certain a set of incidents, and you want to construct the the narrative that um, kind of best captures those those incidents, and you don't want too many of them to be too far away from the biography <laughs> that is the kind of nar narrative surface, and uh, yet. Um, and in, in statistics, there are ways to do that. You want to minimize the squares of the deviations and so on. So informally, we do that as well when we're telling biographies. And we, we only have a, a few incidents to work with. 
and the rest is influence and uh, and gushing and uh, and going on from there. Um, there are a number of really inter- interesting and intriguing anecdotes um, that permeate your book, and there are a couple that I certainly want to discuss. And one of them was the anecdote about your childhood experience of being totally immersed in the moment and pointing out the trade-off between the payoffs for prudence and the pleasure of immersion, as exhibited by the young girl on the motorbike in Bangkok. Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting that uh, you like that. Uh the experience was um, I was walking down a narrow um, story, which is uh, Thai for alley or small street, and I, I noticed this uh, young uh, uh, Thai woman on a big motorcycle. It was much too big for her, and on the back of it were three uh, her three small children, and uh, there was an overhang uh, the. The street, the alley went through um, a grove of trees, and a tree was a uh, branch was hanging down with some very fragrant flowers that I could smell even from where I was. And she stopped the motorcycle and uh, put her put her uh, her leg out to support it, and pulled the branch down and smelled it, and really seemed uh, uh, moved by the smell. And she gave it to each of her three kids, and they uh, were. were inhaled it and she had this beatific smile on her face but her leg was extending out and it was a narrow street so cars were going by and just barely missing her foot and she was completely oblivious uh, to uh, to the danger she was in but it, it struck me as uh, kind of a, a trade-off to being really in the moment as she seemed to be and uh, being being prudent and often there's a there's a, a trade-off. Uh, if you're too prudent or too cognizant of your surroundings and what you can do to maximize this and maximize that, you do tend to not be in the moment. And um, and the incident reminded me of uh, a couple in in my early childhood where I, I was in the moment instead of observing somebody else. But um, in any case, uh, that... Uh, and and even though it seems strange, like what does that have to do with math? Again, what I did is take incidents and then use them as jumping off points. So I took uh, some some little event that um, uh, had a huge consequence, and then I used that to talk about uh, the butterfly effect and small different small differences in initial conditions leading to huge differences later on, or. We talk about uh, probability and uh, why and mistakes people make, and then why uh, what relevant notions from uh, formal probability is uh, are relevant, or even crushes, romantic crushes, and um, Bayesian statistics. I mean, when you first meet somebody and you develop a crush on them, the prior probability, so to speak, is that this person is wonderful, is flawless, is this, is that. And uh, gradually, as you come to meet them, you are um, uh, disabused of these idealistic romantic notions, and um, you, in a sense, use an informal version of Bayes' theorem to revise your initial opinions. Uh, as more information comes in, you change your um, your estimate of the likelihood of this or that, or your um, attitude toward this or that. So well, it since seems you- like the Sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just uh, it, I was just reminded at this stage that um, there's a wonderful story about how you met your wife, and I know our listeners would enjoy listening to it. But uh, I want to make sure that I get in your thoughts on some other topics as well. But I just loved how you met your wife. Uh, so uh, I met her at the uh, graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and we were at a Viet, uh, Vietnam War demonstration and uh, police started using uh, tear gas and uh, and everyone scattered and ran and she and I happened to run in the same direction and our eyes were stinging wasn't it and so we, there was a water fountain there and I very uh, gallantly I guess uh, held the water fountain open so she she was her name could uh, wash out her eyes before I washed out mine and um, 
then uh, we decided to go out. We went to an Italian restaurant, uh, and uh, we were sitting talking, and we had, we had given our order, and it took a long time, and we didn't know why. And uh, Sheila said, uh, maybe they'll come and deliver it if I knock this Coke bottle. We had Coke. We had ordered Coke. I knock it on the floor. And I said, no, no, don't, don't do that. She said, yeah, no, we, he's, he's taken half an hour. It's a simple order. So she gradually edged the Coke bottle near the end of the, to the end of the table, and it, of course, crashed on the floor. And everybody ran over, including the waiter, and uh, and tried to clean clean it up immediately and apologize for. She didn't even say anything about the food, but they brought the food immediately. Anyway, this kind of um, I was uh, kind of uh, smitten by this and. Uh, Talk about romantic pressures, uh, you know, that, that seemed like a really appealing thing uh, to do. Well, you discussed something called robo-romance, romance between human-robot amalgams. And as you were doing so, I don't know whether or not you're familiar with Data in Star Trek, The Next Generation, but Data is sort of like, I think it's... Uh, uh, I can't, the Tin Man in uh, The Wizard of Oz who wants to be human, who wants to get a heart. And one of the things that Data is trying to do is acquire some knowledge and possibly involvement with romance. You suggest that seduction or romance might depend upon how these creatures, these human robot amalgams, react to their and each other biographies. But isn't that what we do as human beings? Uh, yes, in, in a sense, but. Um... I mean, uh, will we go? Will we be nothing more than universal Turing machines uh, with different capacities, different fleshware, different speeds? I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know. What if some of the readership of a biography, to get back to biography, oper- operates with a different version of the software than that of the protagonist? And what happens when memories are can be tweaked, changed, implanted, or even deleted? And uh, that's not so unlikely. Um, I, I actually I have an example of um, a, a story that uh, comes to mind. It's, uh, as I say in the book, it's retro, futuristic, and a little silly, but it, it's uh, germane to these more weighty considerations. Uh, imagine a kind of uh, logical seduction by a super-enhanced uh, machine. And... Um, the super enhanced human male, let's say, were to brag about his various system upgrades and familiarity with many technical matters while flirting with a human fe- uh, female <laughs> whose software and hardware enhancements compelled her to be totally, absolutely, scrupulously honest. And that could be the case. And of course, the assumptions underlying this can be changed and sexist and whatever, but let's go with the, the man trying to con the woman, uh, which could go the other way around, of course. Uh, after, a while, <laughs> after a while, he asked her, will you solemnly promise to give me right now your telephone number if I make a true statement? And conversely, not give me your number if I make a false statement. And feeling that uh, this is kind of a flattering, uh, benign request um, and not so strange given the man's background, the woman promises to give him her, tele- her telephone number if and only if he makes a true statement. And the man then makes his, this statement. You will neither give me your telephone number now, nor will you sleep with me tonight. And the woman <laughs> flustered, <laughs> flustered a little bit and she thinks through her options, she realizes that the statement um, is either true or false, and that if it's true, the statement says that she won't give him her telephone number. But if it's false, she must not give him her number because of her promise to give it to him only if he makes a true statement. And so if the, whether the statement is true or false, she won't give him her number. So she won't give him her number any, under any circumstances, but if she refuses to sleep with him, the statement becomes true, and this would require her. This would require her to give him her number, which she can't do. The only way she can keep her promise is to sleep with him, so that his statement becomes false, and the, the woman's seemingly, <laughs> seemingly innocuous promise ensnares her. And we can all be similarly ensnared by by bad software. And um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to follow uh, such a train of uh, logic. Uh, 
Yeah, when you're talking about it, but when you read about it, you can certainly do it. But this doesn't seem like the world's greatest pickup line in the 21st century. Uh, Maybe we have to wait a few centuries for it. Yeah, I I suspect the class of unenhanced people for whom this seduction approach would work is is still rather tiny. tiny. Well, I only had one instance in my entire life in which when I was introduced as a mathematician, a young lady's eyes lit up. And after she learned that I was a mathematician, she said, you know, I've always wanted to be a mathematician. And so I'm stunned because nobody wants to meet mathematicians, especially attractive girls. And then she said, tell me, why is nine the master number? And I knew she was interested in numerology rather than mathematics. Yeah, that, that's a problem. I, I sometimes, uh, an issue I sometimes come across, uh, people, you know, see the title to uh, uh, my previous book, Enumeracy, and uh, actually even in this book, and they say, oh, I'm uh, I'm interested in numerology too. You must, uh, well, are you uh, this or that? Are you a, a Capricorn and whatever? So, um <laughs> Yeah, there's a confusion here. And also, in your discussion of probability, you bring up an idea you call the fundamental confusion of coincidences, which results in a lot of muddled thinking. Yeah, the the fundamental confusion is the following. People often ask me, some, uh, what's the likelihood of some sequence of events, this, that, and, and that? And the answer, of course, is it's uh, anytime you ask about a specific event or a specific sequence of events, the, the probability is almost always tiny, minuscule. But uh, the right question to ask is what's the probability of something of this general sort occurring? And uh, and that, you know, it's hard to define the general sort, but uh, relying on a rough idea of what it might mean, that probability is always very high. So the probability of a general event of this sort occurring is quite high. I mean, you look, I mean, there's standard ways to generate examples. You look at the first letters of the of the planets, or Mercury, Venus, Earth, MVE, and then Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, as you continue, the word sun appears if you look at the first letters of the planet in order of their distance from the sun. And Saturn, Uranus, Neptune at the end, and the word sun appears. Uh, or the first letters of the months, January, February, March, April, and so on. You have July, August, September, October, November. The word Jason appears. Is, is that significant? No. And if you ask beforehand if some sequence of letters, you have a dial, let's say, with the, the um, letters, of, the 26 letters of the alphabet around the periphery, and you spin it 100 times, the probability that the word cat will appear in that 100-letter sequence in order is small. Likewise, for the probability the word dog will appear. Likewise, for the probability, of course, that the word chrysanthemum will appear. But the probability probability of some word of at least three or four letters will appear is quite high. So the probability of a particular word is always, a particular event is is almost always tiny. The probability of something of that general sort or some word is very high, and people confuse these two, and um, that's... uh, Yeah, there was a book a few years ago called The Bible Code, um, in which what they did was they did a whole bunch of things like this, and uh, they look at all the various different possible ways you can go through the Bible according to various different uh, letter sequences, and they come up with some astounding predictions, and then somebody else went through, I think it was War and Peace, and came up with equally astounding uh, predictions. And that's just what happens is when you look at a lot of stuff like this, uh, sooner or later, something appears and you say, wow. And that's actually an example of the fundamental confusion of coincidences. Right. I mean, I wrote a piece once about how um, the uh, Clinton sex scandal, uh, Bill Clinton sex scandal was... uh, was uh, coded for in the U.S. Constitution, and you, you look and then you look for a so-called equidistant letter sequence for uh, for Bill. B, 18 letters later is I, 18 letters later is L, 18 letters later is another L, and then you look for uh, Lewinsky and uh, Monica. Here's an M, 37 <laughs> letters later is an O, 37 letters an N, and so on. 
and uh, you find the two, and they're in fairly close proximity, and you say, see, or they're not in close proximity. You, if not, you look for longer sequences, and you don't have to go forward. You could go forwards, backwards, diagonally, and uh, if you look hard enough, and then you don't even have to look for Monica. You can look for Kathleen or Jennifer or whatever. Uh, <laughs> you look hard enough, you'll, you'll find something, and then after you find it, it seems so un- so unlikely. What's the likelihood that you'll see those letters in an equidistant letter sequence here and nearby there? And the answer is tiny. But if you look through the whole thing and you look hard enough, you'll find it. And uh, that is a good example of the fundamental uh, confusion regarding probability. You know, John, you're probably one of the few mathematicians who has achieved any degree of widespread recognition beyond the narrow world of mathematics. And your experiences from the writing of the book in numeracy probably parallel those of people who were suddenly catapulted into widespread recognition. A number of years later, you wrote a book called Irreligion. And I wasn't surprised to learn that a book on a touchy subject such as religion could generate hate mail. It surprised me to learn that a numeracy did as well. Yeah, I think... uh... Yeah, I did. I used to, I'd get letters with uh, bullseyes on my forehead or anti-Semitic screeds or schizophrenic ramblings. But I think it's just a matter of uh, multiplication. If you, if you reach a large number of people, even if only a tiny percentage of them are kind of uh, crazy, for lack of a... Uh, crazy is a good term. word here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, a, tiny, a, no, a tiny percentage times a very large number still yields, you know, 25 crazy letters or or calls or whatever. Were any of these, you know, one of the things that we worry about in this day and age uh, is that people really have, uh, people really do some terrible things when their minds are disturbed. And just out of curiosity, um, you would get hate mail, but do you ever have anything that uh, would really constitute a major threat, do you think? Oh, I did, yeah. In fact, uh, your religion probably would. Pardon? Irreligion uh, yeah. would probably generate. Uh, uh, yeah, surprisingly, numeracy did uh, more than irreligion. I think because it sold more, so it reached more people. But uh, both of them did. But especially numeracy, I, I even called the FBI because I kept getting this, you know, seemingly threatening letters uh, from the same guy that I know where you live. And then it was, you know, he, he wrote in three different colored inks and sometimes uh, diagonally and sometimes up and down. Uh, and and then he always... Sounds like some of my students. Yeah, he always included a picture of me with a bullseye on my forehead. <laughs> well, that they don't do with me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is, it's, it's a little scary because you would think that, you know, mathematics is pretty innocuous, but uh, I guess it isn't so much mathematics as the fact that these people are disturbed and uh, they just, you know, uh, you just uh, cross their radar screen. Yeah, no, and it wasn't so much the, the math. I mean, I, I think, I mean, there were like mildly snarky comments, like in a numeracy, I, I said in public context. I always use my middle name, John Allen Paulos, to distinguish myself from the then Pope, John Paul. And, oh. <laughs> you know, that seemed uh, innocuous to me, but some people took offense at that. And then I said something about the you know, the 40-day flood and how much would have to fall to be, you know, cover the earth with this much. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, well, if ever you try to do calculations like that, um, I've discovered that, uh, as you probably did with your parents when you were thinking about Santa Claus, that calculations that disprove things that people uh, believe in generate a lot of uh, a lot of antipathy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, because you're, you're treading on or at least near sacred cows and, uh, and even just applying something like notions, mathematical notions, somehow seems uh, ir- you know, irreverent and inappropriate. So. 
You know, getting to the 21st century, um, one of the things that exists in the 21st century that didn't exist when you wrote a numeracy is Twitter. And you discussed the idea that Twitter and its ill can help put together a biography by focusing on the connections people have with each other. And when I read that, I thought, good heavens, they've been doing this for, you know, they've been doing this for ever since they wrote biography. So how does this, do you think, how does it differ from standard biography? Well, I think it, it captures the evanescence of uh, acquaintances. I mean, when people wrote standard biographies, they didn't talk about uh, people that, uh, you know, the protagonist might have said hello to a few times or interacted with at the corner drugstore or whatever. Whereas, you know, you follow all kinds of people, all kinds of people follow me on Twitter. And by the way, I'm going to have a, engage in a Twitter war with Neil deGrasse Tyson this coming uh, uh, Friday. So, um, is there uh, any way we can participate in it, or at least be observers? Sure, you just you go to Twitter. Follow either and one of you. Follow either one of us, and uh, and you can go from there. But um, yeah, one, it captures the evanescence of everyday life. Because it's kind of more formal, you can apply mathematical tools and the small world phenomenon, whereby um, you know there are clusters, clusters. And you also of, uh, get people. the six degrees of separation thing. Right, clusters for people close together, and everybody's connected to somebody uh, distantly, and that results in the small world phenomena. That results in six degrees of separation, fewer depending on the on what the link between people are. There's the Kevin Bacon game where <laughs> if you're in the same movie as Kevin Bacon, your your Bacon number is uh, one. If you're in the same <laughs> movie as somebody else was, your Bacon number is two, and, th- and so on. Same thing for Erdos numbers. If you write a, you wrote a paper with Paul Erdos, the very prolific, peripatetic uh, mathematician, your Erdos number is one. If you wrote a paper with someone who wrote a paper with Erdos, your number is two. And um, that's me. And so on. Pardon? That's me. I wrote a paper with someone who wrote a paper with Erdos. So my Erdos. Oh, number, wow. Yeah. Oh, well, that's cool. Uh, I, my yeah. Erdos number, Erdos number is, um, is four. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, I, I once uh, was, uh, when I was working on my thesis in graduate school in, in medicine, I was kind of wandering through the hall at three o'clock in the morning thinking about something. And I heard this little voice behind me, and I almost yelped. Anyway, I turned around. It was uh, Erdos, who was visiting University of Wisconsin. And, you know, I kept from um, having a heart attack or yelping too much. Anyway, he asked me what I was thinking about, and I told him. And and he, I was flattered to think, uh, you know, he, he offered some suggestions. And it was it was kind of, uh, he seemed genuinely interested. As, uh, I mean, his whole life was mathematics. He's known for, among among many things, there's many papers, of course, but uh, there's a little quip that he, he's a machine for turning coffee into theorems. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have a kind of parasitic uh, uh, quip, which is I turn Diet Coke into paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> um, another, uh, there were a couple of other things that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, you touch on some really important concepts in mathematics, and one of the ones that uh, uh, you, I liked was the way you phrased that most people's lives exhibit some degree of symmetry and invariance. I think that this is indicative of one thing that I would hope your book accomplishes, to make people realize that although mathematics deals with some very abstract systems and concepts, these abstractions have easy-to-understand examples in everyday context. Uh, yeah, I, I talk about symmetry, invariance, and, and how it applies to human lives. I mean, even people who have very different backgrounds, very have led very different lives, there's a certain gross similarity to their lives. I mean, they begin, they uh, they go to school or not, they they embark on, on a career or or a diff, uh, some kind of job, and as they get older, you know, married, divorced. Uh, uh, traveled, but their 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 uh, mindset tends to, uh, after a while, be somewhat similar. Even d- despite this um, seemingly different development, a- as they get older, the uh, their options uh, shrink. The number of the options shrink, and they they tend to kind of hone in on a, 
similar sort of mindset, a similar sort of view. And to the extent that that can be made precise, which admittedly is very vague, can be modeled in a lot of ways. One involves what, it, what is called the, the crucial card trick, whereby uh, you, you ask a person to pick a, a special number between uh, 0, uh, 1, and 10, and you have a normal deck of cards, and uh, you say, look for the first, and you don't tell him what it is. He says three, but keep it a secret. You turn over the cards one by one. Whenever a three comes up, well, on the third card, rather, whatever number comes up, that's his new secret number. If the third card is a five, then go ahead five numbers. And if, the, if the, that card is an eight, then you go ahead eight numbers. And whatever card that is, if it's a face card, you count all face cards as five and keep on going through the deck, almost everybody's going to end up on the same card at the end. And if you have several decks, it becomes even more likely. That's almost certain. And um, so there's this, and the reason is that no matter if two different people pick different initial secret numbers, they progress along this, um, this, using this rule, and sooner or later, if they jump around through the deck, they're going to alight on the same number, and from there on, they're going to move in lockstep. And um, and uh, in, a, in a way, life is like that, and uh, you can modify this in various ways. You can do, look at it with words. You pick, let's say, the um, Declaration of Independence. You pick a word from the first couple of uh, sentences, and then if it's got seven letters, you move ahead seven words, then that's your new word. If it's got three letters, you move ahead three words. And if you do it artfully, you can always end on a particular word like happiness. Or you can pick a, uh, a passage from the Bible, and if you pick it um, uh, artfully enough, you can always ensure that no matter what word they pick from the beginning of the passage, they'll always end on the word uh, devil. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to be really careful with this. <laughs> <laughs> or you can do it on purpose and... Uh, Intentionally, and uh, you know, create a kind of religious hoax, as I talked about. Yes, in well, religion. <clears throat> um, of course, uh, along with the idea that we discussed regarding hate mail and the numeracy, I'm not sure that's the best idea for our listeners to pursue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. uh, but it's if nothing else, it's very you know, it's interesting. Uh, the idea behind the generality of the Kruskal card trick, I thought, was especially appealing because I've done the Kruskal card trick occasionally with decks of cards, but I've never done it in that particular way. And that's an intriguing idea. And actually, in a way, it's sort of what mathematics does. In that mathematics, you have an idea that applies to one area, and then all of a sudden you realize that it's much more general than you originally thought. Right, yeah, that's exactly exactly right. Actually, yeah. Gary, talking about the development of, of humans throughout their life, I uh, was uh, feeling uh, kind of, you know, and um, and I see how people, when they get older, do become jaded, and uh, I thought of uh, ways to possibly model that mathematically. I mean, uh, and uh, and I, th I thought of uh, the number of new records that occur. The, the records, uh, record whatever performances, all will become uh, less frequent as you go on. I mean, one example I cite is you. You have somebody um, flip a coin a thousand times. You might get 507 heads. That's certainly a record. You've never done it before. But you flip a coin a thousand times again, you'll get 491 coins, let's say. 491 heads. You do it again, you get 503. Do it again, 498. Do it again, 511. Now it's a new record, but it occurred you know, on the fifth time you flipped the coin a thousand times. And if you keep on flipping the coin a thousand times, maybe on the tenth time you flip it, you'll get a, a third new record. And then the 39th time you you flip it, you get a fourth new record. On the 197th time, you get a fifth new record. But anyway, it's it's clear that the new records become less and less frequent. And um, the number of new records, if you flip the coin a thousand times, N times is a natural log of N, so it's a weird, weird connection between natural log of N and and E. There's a connection, a very strong connection with E. Um, 
it's it's weird that uh, something as 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 personal as feeling bored or jaded can be modeled at least in this Pickwickian sense using the coin flips or the decreasing uh, uh, frequency of uh, record performances. I mean, the only the I mean, what what stimulated this in my own life is I got a couple of awards. I got an award from the um, American Association for the Advancement of Science for promoting science to a large audience. And I got a comparable award from a consortium of math organizations for doing the same thing in math. I got that award a couple of years ago. And I got to thinking, you know, you get awards when you get older. (laughs) And, uh, <laughs> yes, we get lifetime and, achievement awards. <laughs> yeah, li- lifetime achievement awards are uh, are good to uh, receive, but also kind of uh, reminders of one's mortality. So I got to thinking about, as I say, uh, jadedness and uh, so on. And the only, the only, uh, I mean, you know, the the first few movies you see, oh, it's the best movie I ever saw, the best food, the best restaurant I ever saw, the best this, and those best whatever become as I say less frequent. The only way you can keep on setting records is um your ears continue to set the yeah <laughs> to grow and the uh, record size but uh, that's uh, not a whole lot of consolation. Uh, John, it's been an extremely enjoyable experience to talk with you. As I, I was looking forward to this interview because I'd read a couple of your earlier books and not just Enumerate Life, which is the one that we're talking about now, but some of the previous ones. And uh, I'm just glad that I had the opportunity to conduct this interview. And I'd like to know if you have a website and how the listener can contact you. Uh, yes. Other than uh, follow uh, you on Twitter by uh, so, along with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. My website is johnallenpaulos.com. Allen is A-R-L-E-N, Paulos, P-A-U-L-O-S, but one word, johnallenpaulos.com. John, what's the title and subtitle of your book once again? The title is Enumerate Life, and its subtitle is A Mathematician Explores the Vagaries of Life, His Own and Probably Yours. John, it was definitely some of my life as well. Anyway, I enjoyed talking to you. Best of luck in the future. Uh, I enjoyed it as well. Thanks very much, Jim. 